everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. It's been a pretty busy week, but I've been able to clear myself a little bit of time to engage in one of my favorite hobbies, which is wild, unresearched speculation about the origin of holiday traditions. You know, like figuring out that on Easter, we hide our eggs from Jesus because he just came back from the dead and is probably super hungry. But you want to be able to find your eggs later after he goes back to sleep, so you dye them a bright color. Well, one tradition that's flummoxed me for a while is the whole Christmas tree thing. I know there's like evergreen boughs and Saturnalia and whatnot, but still, the idea of just bringing a tree inside of your house because it's Christmas always seemed like a weird flex to me. But I think I figured it out. Like all the best holiday traditions, it's about pranking ghosts. Just like on Halloween, you dress up in a scary costume to try to convince ghosts, hey, just a bunch of scary monsters here, nobody who needs eaten. And, you know, the trick-or-treating thing, I think, is probably just a redistribution of candy, so you're shuffling it around so they don't know who's got the candy. Because I assume they would figure the person with the most candy has, like, I don't know, like, delicious marbled fat, and they'd want to eat them first. Go seek people, right? Probably. And that's why you hollow out a pumpkin and put it out in front of your house so they think, oh, this guy just eats pumpkins. Gross, he's probably all lean and gamey. No thanks. Well, like Halloween, Christmas is traditionally a time for ghosts. And therefore, a great opportunity for ghost pranks. See? You don't want these spectral dipshits coming into your house and telling you to be a better person and remember Christmas pasts and then have to get up early in the morning and buy a goose or a turkey as big as a street urchin just to try to appease your undead visitors from the night before? No! Who has the time for that? What, am I made of turkeys the size of a Dickensian waif? I am not. That is where Christmas trees come in. Jacob Marley and his three enforcers roll into your house. They see a Christmas tree. They're all like, wait a minute, I thought this was inside a house. But there's a tree, and it's got lights all over it. Looks kind of like stars. Fuck. We're outside, aren't we? Must have gotten this address wrong. The guy we're supposed to be haunting definitely lives inside. Well, shit. I guess we'll have to trick somebody else into buying a giant bird. Come on, guys. So, yeah, I figure that's probably why bringing a tree inside is a seasonal winter tradition. It's a ghost prank. So, I mean, we don't have a tree this year, but I think maybe I'll just move that couch out onto the porch. Then the ghost will just wait out there for me to come home, because they'll think the outside is inside, and uh, eventually the sun will come up and they'll turn to stone. Unless that's trolls. I always mix those up. Well, either way, it's nice to have a porch couch. But enough of this rambling, seasonally appropriate though it might be, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Laura. The Eye of Agamotto flashes stylishly agape. <laughs> 
the perfect counterpoint for Steve's carnation-colored cape. All forms of torso coverings, the Hulk needs must a shoe, but he likes jorts unintentional in a lovely larkspur hue. And Patsy's cat suit is as gold as a field of coreopsis. But before sartorially speaking, here's Hub with a synopsis. Synopsis? Thanks, Laura. I usually try to match Defender synopsis rhymes with Defender's issues and New Teen Titans synopsis rhymes with New Teen Titans issues, but this week, I didn't. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 32, June 1987. Trivial Pursuit. Written by Paul Levitz and maybe Marf Wolfman a little. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto. Inked by Pablo Marcos. Lettered by Albert de Guzman. Colored by Adrian Roy. And edited by Mike Gold and maybe Marv Wolfman a little bit. Teen Titan Roll Call. Wonder Girl. Raven. Starfire. Cyborg. Nightwing. Previously in the New Teen Titans. After spending a year's worth of storyline battling Brother Blood and his eponymous church, our titular teenagers finally emerge triumphant over the surprisingly spry supposed septicentenarian but secretly seventh-generation single-centenarian supervillain and his strangely sanguinary sect. Hooray! And also, Gadzooks! Have we really seen the last of Brother Blood? How will the Titans celebrate their defeat of a creepy older jerk who was inappropriately obsessed with teenaged heroes? And after spending most of this recent adventure as the brainwashed captive of a creepy cult, will Dick Grayson finally get a chance to show off his famous detective abilities? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... It's a superhero comic. What do you think? By spending a long weekend with Terry Long... And, if by detective abilities you mean moping and eavesdropping, then yes. Yes, he does. Starfire has just moved into her new apartment and is pretty stoked about it. After putting on a record, she flops on the couch and starts pulling petals off a flower and doing that he-loves-me-he-loves-me-not thing, which she says is an earth game that Nightwing taught her. The fact that Dick taught her a game which is one- not much of a game, and B, a fun way for his at-the-time girlfriend to speculate as to the nature of his feelings towards her, because he certainly isn't going to tell her what they are, is so on brand for a guy raised by Batman that it borders on self-parody. Coriander has barely finished ripping apart her foliage when a horn starts honking outside her window. It's Wonder Girl and her creepy ex-professor husband, Terry Long. They're here to pick up the Space Princess and drive her upstate for the weekend for some well-earned R&R with the rest of the Titans. Donna and Terry tease each other about their respective driving records in a way that doesn't make a ton of sense. Then, off they all go. In the Titan Tower, Cyborg grumbles to himself about the fact that he isn't particularly excited to be heading to a rural environment, especially since apparently Beast Boy, Jericho, and Nightwing have all decided to opt out of this Titan togetherness retreat. Nevertheless, the mostly molybdenum Marvel hops in the Titan's jet and zooms off to join his teammates. Meanwhile, in the woods outside the T-shaped skyscraper, Raven sits on a rock and gets her Snow White on. 
by which I mean she's chatting with some forest creatures who gather around her, not that she's munching on poisoned apples and hanging out with a septet of diminutive miners. Raven reflects on the changes she's been through recently. She used to be all gloomy and foreboding, on account of her extra-dimensional demonic bad dad was living in her bird-shaped soul tummy, and if she ever felt happy, he might get out and wreck the universe. Then he did get out and nearly wrecked the universe, but she sacrificed her life to destroy him. Then she was, I guess, dead for a little while, but she got better and resurrected in the Deep South, and was almost immediately kidnapped by a leper colony who almost re-killed her by forcing her to overuse her healing powers. Then the Church of Blood murdered all the lepers and double-kidnapped her, put her in a white sundress, and brainwashed her into joining their cult. Then Brother Blood tried to kill her mom, so Raven snapped out of the brainwashing, beat him up, and took all his powers away. She kept the sundress, though. All in all, it's been a pretty tumultuous indeterminate amount of comic book time for the Azerathian empath. The bunny rabbit she had been telling all this to is unimpressed and hops away. Tough crowd. A short while later, in a different bucolic forest upstate, a group of asshole kids gets lost in the woods. They're starting to freak out a little, when a kid named Jack, who had tried to tell the others that they were going the wrong way, makes the mistake of pointing out that he was in fact correct. This does not sit well with the group's alpha asshole, a kid named Robbie. Robbie yells at Jack and dangles him over the edge of a cliff, which is a dick move, but also pretty impressive display of upper body strength for a boy his age. Unfortunately, Robbie's dexterity is more in line with his charisma than it is his strength. He stumbles, and both children go tumbling over the edge of the cliff and into the lake below. Fortunately, within seconds of the boys hitting the water, Starfire swoops down and fishes Jack out of the water. Hooray! Rather than express contrition for his attempted manslaughter, boy slaughter? Robbie decides to awkwardly hit on Starfire. So she leaves him in the lake and lets him crawl out on his own. Hooray! At this point, Raven pops in and uses her nonsense powers to clear the water out of Jack's lungs. The kids are more interested in meeting the famous titans who have just appeared than they are concerned that one of their alleged pals nearly died. So they are super excited when Cyborg and Wonder Girl smash through the nearby trees, clearing a path back to the main trail. After a few moments of being starstruck, the asshole children reluctantly make their way back to the lodge where they were staying, and the Titans head off to check into their rooms at the plushly appointed, if somewhat generically named, Mountain Inn. Soon after check-in, the heroes convene in Terry and Donna's room to discuss their plans for the weekend. Terry Long has collected all of the brochures from the lobby and has a number of suggestions for group activities. Surprisingly, None of these suggestions are, well, we could all sit around and write history papers for Terry to publish under his name. So I assume Donna has made him throw those ones away. Nice work, Donna. Donna and Terry start to make out, so everyone throws paper airplanes at them. The tomfoolery is interrupted by the arrival of Nightwing, who, despite initially declining to attend the retreat, decided to show up after all. Everybody throws paper airplanes at him. Once things settle down a bit, Terry makes yet another suggestion, one that amazingly does not involve making out with teenagers or plagiarism. It seems that the hotel is hosting one of those murder mystery evening events. Nobody seems too excited about this prospect until Dick is like, 
well, no way are we doing that. At which point the rest of the group decides that, yes, they are definitely 100% going to do that. A few minutes later, the gang, clad in their least conspicuous, which is to say still very conspicuous, civilian duds, makes their way to the hotel lobby, where the murder mystery puzzle is scheduled to take place. Dick is still hesitant to participate, so Starfire shoves him in the back and sends the hesitant hero sprawling. Dick regains his footing and apologizes to the crowd that he has stumbled into. He notices that one member of that crowd is lying down, and he's about to offer to help him to his feet when he notices that the prone bystander is dead. Damn, Starfire! How hard did you push the guy? The state police soon show up and confirm that the cadaver is not, in fact, part of the evening's planned festivities, and that, as near as they can tell, an actual murder has taken place. Bummer. After sticking around to listen in on the cops question the innkeeper and his son Max, who is home on break from medical school to help his dad run the place, the Titans decide to solve the murder themselves. Terry tries to object that that would be boring and is none of their business, but everybody tells him to shut up. Hooray! Later that night, Dick and Coriander break into the police station and steal the investigating officer's notes on the case. It turns out that the main suspects in the murder are the innkeeper, the innkeeper's son Max, and some guy named Chuck who is staying at the inn. Chuck has no apparent connection to the victim, but has a criminal record. Gotta say, I'm about as impressed with the cop's investigative skills as I am with Dick's. But at least the cop did his own work. The next day, Starfire, Wonder Girl, and Raven follow Chuck around. Because hey, if you don't have any actual leads, you may as well harass an ex-con. Chuck heads out into the woods where he meets up with a couple of his pals. He retrieves a high-powered rifle which he had hidden in the woods. Well, that doesn't look good. Donna and Raven are concerned, but it turns out there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for this suspicious behavior. See, Chuck and his buddies are just out sport-hunting endangered eagles. Damn it, Chuck and his buddies! Raven and Wonder Girl round up the poachers and scare the shit out of them. Hooray! Starfire flies up and has a little chat with the eagle to make sure it's okay, which makes her the second character in this book to inexplicably go all Disney princess with the Animal Kingdom. Good for her. I'm a little surprised Donna doesn't get in on the act, seeing as, like Raven and Starfire, she is a literal princess, but maybe after all her brainwashed cat-strangling escapades, the Animal Kingdom's given her the cold shoulder for a minute. I get it. Raven uses her powers to compel Chuck and his accomplices to turn themselves into the authorities. But despite being all-around pieces of shit, the trio of Scofflaws had nothing to do with the mysterious corpse. The Titans are out of ideas, so they decide to get back to their roots and engage in the time-honored Teen Titan tradition of eavesdropping. That evening, Nightwing cajoles Cyborg into climbing a tree outside the innkeeper's office with him and together they listen in on a conversation between Max and his father. Or, at least they do until Cyborg falls out of the tree. Whoops. Apparently, before Vic's emphatic reacquaintance with the ground, the two Titans must have overheard some piece of information that Dick found actionable, because later that night, the angst-prone acrobat sends Starfire off on an overnight fact-finding mission based on what he had heard. Starfire is like, Okay, I'll go, but you do know that Raven can teleport, right? Dick is like, uh, maybe. 
Starfire's like, so you're only sending me away because you don't want to be alone with me ever since I was forced into an arranged space marriage in a futile effort to keep my home planet from descending into a bloody civil war, right? Dick is like, yeah, kinda. Starfire's like, okay, you're lucky I love you, you stupid self-absorbed idiot. Bye, Dick. And away she goes. Early the next morning, Starfire phones Dick and informs him that what she learned seems to confirm what he learned eavesdropping the previous night. Nightwing rounds up the gang and has them carry him over to the highway, where he leaps dramatically onto the hood of a speeding police cruiser to share what he has learned with the local gendarmes. Jeez, buddy, I know cell phones weren't that prevalent yet, but I'm pretty sure they had invented standing on the side of the road and waving your arms by 1987. I mean, it's not like your bright blue and yellow outfit would exactly blend in with the scenery. Anyway, the cop pulls over and Dick is like, Hey dummy, I solved your case for you. Turns out, there was no murder. Max thought the addition of an honest-to-gosh corpse would spice up Murder Mystery Night, so he swiped one from his medical school. His dad's super pissed at him about it, so try to go easy on the grave-robbing twerp, will ya? Oh, and you're welcome. Then Raven pops in and teleports Dick over to a nearby tree that Donna's hanging out in, so that the three heroes can giggle like ninnies together about what good crime solvers they are. The somewhat flustered police officer speeds off to the mountain inn to give that scamp Max a stern talking to about his cadaver-desecrating shenanigans. When the Titans finish laughing for no apparent reason, they too return to the inn, to reconvene with Terry and enjoy the last day of their vacation. When they get there, Terry's impressed. He's like, Wow, I can't believe that while I was here reading a mystery novel, you guys solved a real-life murder mystery. The Titans are like, We sure did. Um, I mean, if by solved, you mean overheard someone confessing to, and if by murder, you mean distasteful prank, then, yeah. You totally solved a murder. Great job, guys. Dick is like, and I know just how we should celebrate. Go out into the woods, find a clearing, and play the board game Clue. Everyone thinks that sounds terrible, so Cyborg tackles Dick, Starfire and Wonder Girl smack him with pillows, and Raven chucks the board game at the back of his head. Ouch. I mean... They're all laughing good-naturedly while they pummel him, but these guys have superpowers. I'm pretty sure Dick's going to be in traction for a while. The end. Except for an epilogue. Somewhere in a seedy part of Manhattan, a shadowy cabal meets and makes the ominous promise to one another that unless the Baltic, occasionally island, nation of Zandia enjoys total freedom by tomorrow, New York City will be destroyed. Well, shit. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going okay. How are you going? I'm doing okay. I understand you did some home renovation recently? I did, yeah. I put in a floor and what's going to be Tina's uh, yoga area. Hmm. How was that? Um, 
I really hate it. I hate laminate flooring. It is horrible and it's just dumb. It's so dumb. I'm sorry, Corey. It's okay. It's the second time I've done it. And after the first time, my dad and I did the kitchen at my old house together. And like, he got really mad. And I was like, God, he's being such a jerk. <laughs> and <laughs> I totally get it now. I had a construction rage incident where I kept trying to get this board to fit and it wouldn't fit. And I got really mad and I called it a bad name and threw it out the wall. <laughs> and then I cracked up because I was like, oh my God. That was so over the top. I am so glad nobody was there to see that. But now I just told everybody. <laughs> I think it's good for people to understand that you're just a seething cauldron of rage. It's really only brought out by laminate click flooring. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Mm -hmm. I had to do some home repair recently myself, by which I mean I had to pay somebody to do some home repair for me. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, well, it was a plumbing thing, and I'm not going to fuck with that. Mm. But yeah, our kitchen sink decided that a good way to work would just be to drain directly into our crawl space rather than go through the pipes. Oh, that's a bad choice. Yeah, it seemed like a bad choice on its part and one that we needed to remedy. So uh, we did get a plumber out here yesterday, but for the week before that, we just couldn't use our kitchen sink. So I was carrying buckets of water between the bathroom and the kitchen like a low-rent pot Ingles, which uh, was kind of fun at first, and it was fun establishing a system and finding mm. out that that system worked. And I was like, oh, aren't I clever? And then I got so fucking sick of it so fast. Yeah, I feel like things like that and, I don't know, like going camping are just good reminders of how easy we have it <laughs> with things <laughs> like plumbing and heaters and all of that yeah although it was also a reminder that for a couple of days kind of fun to feel like pa ingles i think next time maybe i'll just uh go into town to get an orange next time i want to do that hmm. well Corey, you want to talk about a comic book i would enjoy that so what did you think of this comic book oh man I don't know if it's that I like the episodes where we kind of see into the non-heroing recreational aspect of these characters' lives, or it's just that I'm happy that it's no longer the brother blood story, but um, I enjoyed it. I know what you mean. For me, it was kind of a qualified enjoyment. I was both relieved and disappointed with this story. I like the idea of the story. The execution didn't really work for me. It ended up just seeming a little bit thin. We needed a break from a big story arc. But I feel like when you do one of these smaller stories, you need to either really focus on the details or you need to do some character development. And I don't feel like this story really did either of those things. So, well, on the one hand, it was nice to have just kind of a light story that breezed by. It just felt a little bit thin to me. Yeah, it sounds cool, but it's a little light on the details. Exactly. I thought that exact line. <laughs> okay, is that from Hot Potato or Three the Hard Way? I'm going to say Three the Hard Way, but I, I can't remember if I'm being honest. I can't remember which is which either. It was one of the ones, at least, with is it Jim Kelly, Fred Williamson, and Jim Brown? I want to say Richard Roundtree. I didn't think Richard Roundtree was in that one. Oh, man. It's been so long. I need to review them. But yeah, there's a very complicated plot. 
and it doesn't make any sense. And when they get the big exposition dump, one of the protagonists just says, well, you're a little light on the details, but okay. <laughs> yep. No, I, I totally agree. So this issue, I also felt like took some detours that were really kind of unnecessary. So I love this idea of, okay, we're going to go on a vacation. There's going to be a murder mystery. Oh, wait, no, there's a real murder. Oh, shit, we got to solve it. And so like really kind of focusing in on that and making it, I don't know, maybe a little harder to solve, a little more complicated, maybe scarier, instead of having a detour of one of the suspects is an illegal eagle hunter (laughs) (laughs) meeting his buddies. We have to scare those guys. Okay, back to the story. Yeah, the plot itself honestly didn't make a ton of sense. And I was like, I love the idea. The execution just really wasn't there for me. And I think part of that is like, you can't really have that much character development because the writer of this is Paul Levitz, not Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman gets a secondary writer credit, but it's even less than he's had for the last several issues. And if you read the letters column, it seems like he's been on vacation for the last month or so. So the stories that he's been getting a writer credit on, he hasn't really been writing at all. And it has a feeling like Paul Levitz maybe just wants to make sure he doesn't break any of Marv Wolfman's toys, but to the extent that he's not really playing with them. Mm. And it was fine, but it was a little bit frustrating. And you're right, like the murder mystery plot, it's such a great setup for a plot. And it's even an okay twist. But the solving of the crime is essentially Dick overhears a confession. Like, there's no clues. There's no like, oh, I can look into this. It's he waits outside a dude's window and overhears somebody saying what the deal was. Mm -hmm. After coaxing Cyborg up there, despite clearly Cyborg saying, dude, I'm not comfortable with this. I've never climbed a tree before. I don't want to do this. And then he falls out of the tree. Not cool, Dick. He falls out of the tree. But when he does that, it looks like maybe... Nightwing is kicking him out of the tree. It's so confusing. It is. That's all done in silhouette, but it's supposed to look like maybe either Cyborg is like doing a jig on the tree branch to try to regain his balance or something, but there's two feet and the way that they're aligned makes it look like they must be two different people. And when you take that in conjunction with the panel before it, the look on Dick's face as he is standing behind Cyborg, I think he just kicked Vic out of the tree, maybe as a prank. So if it's any consolation, the panel after, like, the panel that shows Cyborg falling and saying, ow, also shows Dick, I believe, slipping and landing hard on his groin on the branch, because he's sort of straddling it and going, "Mm." I think you're right, man. (laughs) Dick takes some physical abuse in this issue. Oh, he does. It's a delight. It is, which honestly made me wonder if maybe this was him trying to take some small measure of revenge. Because other than that, there doesn't seem to be a reason for him to bring Cyborg up in the tree. Like, Cyborg has his special robot ears that can hear through walls, and he could just do that from the ground as easily as from a tree. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only tree-based shenanigans that... Nightwing gets involved in, you see, after he informs the sheriff of what the deal was with the fake slash real slash fake again murder mystery, 
he and Donna hide in the tree and giggle? Mm-hmm. Did you know what they were laughing at there? I thought just they were like, that stupid old sheriff. <laughs> like, it was just a mean-spirited <laughs> laughter. It seems like they must have pranked him in some way. I'm wondering if, like, maybe they just watched Beverly Hills Cop and stuck a banana in his tailpipe. Oh, maybe. I guess they could have just watched probably Beverly Hills Cop 2 would have been out by then. Not as good a movie. No. But it did have Brigitte Nielsen in it, I think. Didn't it? Oh, is that how you say her name? I don't know. Speaking of the physical abuse Dick suffers, so Tree Branch to the Groin was one that I had missed. But even discounting that, you get on page 11 when he first shows up in the hotel room. Paper airplane assault? Well, you get the paper airplane assault, followed by Cyborg yanking him to the ground, and maybe it looks like he's going to break his fucking coccyx there. (laughs) That's a hard move, especially like when you're being pulled by a hydraulic arm. He pulls him from his feet. He lands hard on his butt with a whoomp noise. That is going to be pretty painful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's, you know, in the group dynamic, like, yeah, Dick, we all know you've been brainwashed, I guess, <laughs> this whole <laughs> time that you've been being a jerk. So, you know, it's kind of like that. It seems good natured, but there's something behind it sort of abuse that is being heaped upon him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is like not just kidding on the square, but like minor physical assault on the square. Mm hmm. Like, there is some teeth behind this horseplay. And as we know, horses using their teeth is terrifying. I know, it's like you want it to be cute, like when they're eating an apple or something, but it's just kind of scary. Man, I have had bad dreams about zebras doing that thing where, you know, their lips are pulled back and you can see them baring their teeth. Horrifying. Oh, Oh, no. Thanks, subconscious. That's a, a real treat. Multiple bad dreams, and to the best of my knowledge, I have never run afoul of a zebra, so I'm not sure where that's coming from. I really hope it's not a premonition, but I don't know. Me neither. There's another one where Starfire looks like she's just sort of good-naturedly, like, cuffing him on the back of the head. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like you do. (laughs) Yeah, big dummy, you know, like kind of an affectionate... thing but she hits him so hard he flies like eight feet forward and smashes into a crowd of people yeah and almost trips over a corpse as well Mm -hmm. yeah it really seems like there is something behind that and then when you get to the final page the like oh you guys moment like donna is hitting him in the stomach with a pillow raven is throwing a board game at the back of his head and you see the impact that it makes when it hits him and then cyborg who is half robot, like made out of molybdenum and nonsensium, <laughs> is giving him like a full football tackle from behind and is like, it looks like he's going to break his back. Yeah, and everybody's like laughing and having fun, except Dick looks like he's in actual physical pain. He's like, uh. I love it. It may be a matter of it's been a while since the Titans have hung out with somebody without superpowers. And, like, Dick was gone for a while. They might just be like, oh, yeah, you know, we're all superheroes here. Maybe they just forgot that Dick doesn't technically have any powers. But it really seems like he's getting the short end of the stick on a lot of this. And uh, I hate to say it, but I did enjoy watching that. 
Oh yeah, no need to apologize. He's had it coming, and I think also he plays it cool. Like I'm sure there's all kinds of exchanges like that where he's all bruised up and hurt, but he just doesn't say anything. Like, no, I'm I'm fine. Mm-hmm. No, it's cool. No, I get tackled by robots all the time. I just got some dust in my eye, that's all. <laughs> well, and you also see at the beginning, it took me a while to figure out what he meant by this, but when Starfire first just greets him by giving him a hug, that he's like, ah, you know, my back is actually still kind of fucked up from helping you move last week. Mm-hmm. Initially, I had read that as we saw each other recently. So this kind of enthusiasm is unnecessary. But I really think he is supposed to be saying, like, careful, I've my, my back is still sore. Mm-hmm. So... Dick isn't the only person that gets roughed up more harshly than I think we're supposed to read it in this issue. Those kids in the woods are assholes. Yeah, I mean, Jack seems okay, but he really gets the short end of the stick. That Robbie's a real fucking piece of work. Yeah, Robbie nearly bullies him to death and shows no remorse whatsoever. And not only that, but nobody else in the group of kids seems particularly concerned about Jack. I mean, they don't think that Robbie should kill him, which I guess is nice, but the way they point that out, it's like, ah, just put the little wimp down. It's like, Mm -hmm. what is everybody's problem with Jack? Such assholes. They are total assholes, and it ends up, I think, reading as even more sinister because Jack is the only non-white person in the group of kids and he is the one getting bullied like that. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't any, like, even after he almost drowns and the superheroes have to save his life, nobody seems concerned about him at all. Yeah, there is a nice little passive-aggressive bit, though, where I think it's Starfire rescues Jack and and the kids are like, what about Robbie? And she's like, oh, he'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciated that, actually, because fuck those kids and specifically fuck Robbie, who, yeah, so he's like holding this kid over the edge of the cliff and then he loses his footing. They both fall in the water. Robbie's fine. Jack has water in his lungs and is on the verge of death. Starfire pulls Jack out of the water and Robbie basically uses the opportunity to like low key hit on her. Instead of being like, oh shit, I fucked up and almost killed my friend. Is he okay? Yeah, but when he does that, it is, and this is maybe a stretch, but the most inane bit of dialogue I've ever read in a Teen Titans comic. I I read it like five times and I still don't, I just can't follow the cadence of his speech. I'm going to read it out loud and you tell me if I'm just reading it wrong. Sheesh. I know I can't be drowning because there was nothing in my life this gorgeous to be passing before my eyes. So he's saying you're pretty. Yes. But the way that that it's phrased and how that has to not do with him drowning is lost on me. It's awkward phrasing. What he's trying to get across is, my life must be flashing before my eyes, but I haven't seen anybody as pretty as you, so that can't be what's happening. But it's Um... it's a long walk to get there, and it is a little bit tortured. And it's not the only place in the book where... I have to be like, okay, I think I see what you're getting at with this dialogue, but it doesn't actually work. Mm -hmm. The other main example I'm thinking of is the banter between 
Donna and Terry when they're about to leave about her driving. Mm -hmm. So they're picking up Starfire so they can drive off to the Poconos or whatever. And she's like, the idea of starting early to beat rush hour traffic was your idea, you know. And Terry's like, listen to the professional driver. Careful, honey, or I'll tell Corey that this is your first time behind the wheel in months. That doesn't really make sense as a way to tease. Yeah, it's like, you forgot how to drive in a couple months? I guess. And then her response is, Now, Mr. Long, do I see your nose doing a Pinocchio imitation? Or would you like to admit that your driving record isn't so fabulous either? So I get what's being conveyed there, but like, he wasn't lying about anything there. So the Pinocchio thing doesn't really work. It's like, this is in the shape of banter, but it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, it's like the sentence in English was good, and then it got Google translated into five different languages, and then back to English, and this is what we came up with. Yeah, I think it's a combination of like that and the type of thing you see from Beast Boy sometimes, where it's like, oh, I want to make a sexual innuendo here, but I don't actually know what sex is. So, uh... Is this what I do? And for Beast Boy, it works as character building because he's a dumb idiot who doesn't know what sex is and wants to make a sexual innuendo. But with Donna, it makes it, I guess, like, okay, I guess she was maybe raised partly on Paradise Island. Maybe she's heard of Pinocchio but hasn't actually read it. Maybe she thinks that whenever Pinocchio's an asshole, his nose grows. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's trying to say that Terry's lying about being willing to tell Starfire she hasn't driven in months. Oh, maybe he'd never do that. You big liar. Even he wouldn't sink so low. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Terry does indeed sink low in this issue. I just hated Terry Long so much throughout this issue. <laughs> Guys, why would you solve this murder? We're supposed to be on vacation. <laughs> Not cool. I worked so hard organizing these activities, and all you care about is this dead guy. Not only did I work hard, but um, I also just want to bring up the fact that I haven't worked hard at all to try to find a new job since I got fired for being a fucking uh, lazy creep who didn't do his job. And if I hadn't been fired for that, I would be fired if they saw me making out with a student the way I'm making out with Donna, who. I did make out with when she was my student. Yeah. Oh, Terry. And yeah, him giving Donna shit about her driving when he was apparently a very shitty driver himself. Every step, he's just awful in this, and I just hate Terry Long so much. And he doesn't own that either. He just says, oh, Manhattan's just, it's the Manhattan traffic fault. Yeah. I'm great. Yeah, I'm, I'm not bad at things. I'm Terry. <laughs> Terry fucking long. I bet he says that in the mirror every day. Do you think, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but do you think he says that in the mirror while he's wearing his General Zod vacation outfit that he's wearing in this issue? Yeah. I gotta say, I hate the guy, but man, he pulled off that Zod look pretty good. He totally did. I kind of want a deep V black jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. I think I said he's a sexy ninja. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my notes on Terry said, Terry is the fucking worst. Driving thing, student thing, not trying to find a job thing. And I, yeah, I left off that list, shaming heroes for trying to solve a murder thing. 
And then saying, okay, well, if you are going to try and solve the murder, you have to do it um, before I finish this first chapter in my, my murder mystery book. Yeah, and I think they did, but also it took them three days to solve the murder, which means that Terry's a very slow reader. Which makes you wonder if he was not only trying to get Donna to write his papers for him, but also maybe read them to him. Speaking of murder mysteries, what do you think Max, the college student's plan, was? I think Max was a fucking idiot. (laughs) I think he was like, well, if there's a real dead body, it'll be more compelling. Which doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah, it'll be more fun for everybody if I steal a corpse from my medical school and put it in my dad's inn? What? I think he's one of those people, like, I've run into this in my career in a professional setting where you're like, here is somebody with, you know, an impressive uh, degree or resume, you know, working in an impressive sounding job. And I just can't for the life of me fathom (laughs) how this happened because I've had a conversation with these people. And (laughs) I think it's like that. I just think he's a big dummy. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't think it through. You know what'll make this more fun for everybody? Grave robbing. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem so logical. I have access to all of these corpses. Specifically the corpse of Mr. Jobbins. Mm -hmm. Nobody's gonna miss old Jobbins. (laughs) He was a real piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I just can't. Yeah, there's so much about this little mystery that they have to solve that doesn't makes sense and doesn't really add up. And like I said, Dick's much vaunted detective skills really seem to consist entirely of eavesdropping, which is a respected Teen Titan tradition, and just looking at other people's notes and doing some breaking and entering into a police station to look at their notes when it's already been established that like, oh, they're pretty famous. The police would cooperate with them if they asked. He likes the sneaking around. I think he yeah. gets a charge out of it. Just a thrill seeker. Have you ever uh, participated in slash endured one of those murder mystery dinner things? No, have you? Yes, I had to attend one as part of a team building <laughs> event years and years ago. Oh my gosh, how was it? It was kind of fun and like super like awkward at the same time. Mm-hmm. The only thing I really remember about it is like uh, there was a coworker who wasn't great and he got cast in the role of a groundskeeper named Wilbur Hump, which that really made me happy. Nice. Yep. You know what I think might have spiced that up? Hmm. A real corpse. I thought you might say that. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think that would have had a similar result as what happened here, where people freaked out and called the cops and the party was over. I also thought when you first started to ask me that question that you were going to ask if I had ever uh, broken into a police station to steal their notes. And I'm relieved that you didn't ask that. Oh? No comment. So, who do you think's making those paper airplanes? I was trying to figure that out because there's a lot of them. I think it... It has to be a group. I mean, they do have superpowers, so it could be one person making them real fast and throwing a bunch at once. But I think it's a collective thing. And do you think they're just taking all of the brochures that 
Terry has meticulously arranged and that's what they're made out of. Oh, I hope so. I kind of hope so, too. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I was like, okay, it has to be either Cyborg or Starfire. But you see that, like, it happens before Dick enters the room. And then as soon as Dick enters the room, a paper airplane interrupts Donna and Terry from kissing, which is good. But it's like, wait, did Dick throw that? Where did he get the paper airplane from? And then immediately after he gets hit with three paper airplanes, I mean, I get that this conveys a kind of, like, fun, convivial atmosphere. But where are those paper airplanes coming from? Yeah, that's the real mystery here. Mm. You know what would make that more fun? A real if dead. a real airplane. airplane crashed into the hotel room. Yep, exactly. I don't know why I said a real dead airplane, but <laughs> same thing. Yeah. What did you think of the new look Raven that we're really seeing more or less for the first time here? Uh, I think I like the, the dark outfit better. But the, the scene when she's like hanging out in the dappled sunlight of the forest, communing with the snake and the bunny rabbit, like that, that had a nice sort of like, I don't know, naturey, druidy kind of feel to it. I went with the white robes. Yeah, I can see that. She does have pretty much druidy powers, and seeing her do some snow whiting around was kind of fun. I did think it was funny that she was telling the rabbit, like, why are you so nervous? There's nothing here for you to be afraid of, or I'd know it. And the rabbit is sitting right next to a giant snake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, I mean, you do know what that one thing does to that other thing, right? Yeah, but she doesn't, I guess. No. The main thing I noticed about her look, because we've seen the white outfit a few issues ago, and I think it's a decent look for her. I think I liked the dark robes better, but it makes sense to mix it up a little bit. They're definitely giving her a softer look and veering away from the like gradual demonification that was happening with her physical appearance. But I noticed that her hairline changed. She no longer has a widow's peak. Hmm. I'm wondering if she has it filled in a little bit. Like, I wonder if there's a specific hair club for reformed villains. <laughs> it's like, well, you're not evil anymore, so we need to get you a less evil hairline. I think maybe she'd change the styling. She's just brush, brushing it down. She's like, oh, that looked a little too, too much. <laughs> so, gonna tone down the widow's peak thing. Maybe, because she was going full Lugosi Dracula for a while, and now she's got, like, some softer bangs, and, yeah, seems to have a more, like, traditional hairline that is away from the, like, cartoonish, villainous vampire of Brother Blood and, Mm -hmm. you know, the Count. So, yeah, I just like the idea of there being a specific, like, hair club for villains. More hair down the drain! (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Murder, it's time to call New England Associates. They can help the way you look. They can help the way that I look? (laughs) Well, maybe not not you, Dr. Murder. Oh, nobody's going to understand that. I think we might be the only people who have seen that commercial, because I have tried so hard to find it online. It was on all the time, was it not? Yes, it absolutely was. I've found other New England Associates commercials, but not the one where Steve is sadly 
combing hair down his kitchen sink. More hair down the drain. <laughs> they can help the way I look? Yep. Fucking Steve. I don't know, Steve. You know what I don't like about the new Raven is the way that her teammates are treating her. Where they're like, hey, I know you've kind of been through a lot with the whole demon dad and the brainwashing and the being almost the second most feared slash powerful person in the world. And the dying. But lighten up. Smile. Yeah, you'd look prettier if you smiled. Mm -hmm. And then Donna really doubles down. She just threatens her. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to teach you to dance tomorrow. (laughs) I read that, man. I was just like, I started getting heart palpitations. I was like, ooh. I've been in that boat before. That's not fun at all. I mean, to be fair, we did win that siblings dance contest. I know, but things have just gone downhill from from there, man. I, those were the glory days. I know. <laughs> yeah, and also, whenever she uses her powers now, before it was causing her a great deal of anguish, and you would see, like, the pain on her face, but now it's just her eyes are constantly welled up with tears whenever she uses her powers. Like, it's just too much for her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a lot. Yeah, I I feel like she's one of the most, I guess, sympathetic characters where it's just, she really has the shittiest power, like from a user perspective. Yeah, no kidding. I think it's telling that her superpower is literally to perform emotional labor. I If I was her, I would just wait in the car for all of their adventures. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the art in this issue? I thought it was pretty good. I feel like the emotion on faces was well captured. I really dug the silhouette bits. Yeah, I thought the silhouette bits were really well done. I think overall the art is very good. I gotta say, I miss Romeo Tangal. We have Pablo Marcos doing the inks on this, who coincidentally is doing the inks on the Defenders issues that we've been covering too. (laughs) And he does a good job for the most part, but there are a couple of differences that really stood out to me one of the main ones is the depiction of starfire she's drawn in a like smoother more cartoony style than the rest of the characters and i think that is a matter of the way that she's inked and i think it kind of works in making her appear maybe a little bit more alien but the main effect that it has to me is it makes her look much younger and that wouldn't be as much of a problem if she wasn't also being drawn in a very, like, cheesecake sexy way. And Levitz is writing her in a way that really emphasizes her enthusiastic naivete. And it just kind of combines in a way that strikes me as kind of creepy. Mm. Were you getting that at all or not really? Um, yeah, no, I, I somehow didn't really pick that out. Maybe it was just me. There was some weird word choice that Cyborg uses. I feel like of the characters in this book, since Paul Levitz has taken over, Cyborg's the one that he has kind of struggled to capture his voice the most. And it's not the first time that it's come up. I think a couple of issues ago, he just kept saying the word bull. And in this one, he keeps saying the word nutty. That nutty hybrid gang. The nutty hybrid gang, but like within the same page, he also says 
watching Joey paint those nutty paintings of his. Mm -hmm. And then I th there is a third one later on in the book, which I believe is also Cyborg. It's just a weird choice, because I think he's trying to use contemporary slang, and it's not like Paul Levitz was like a really old guy when he wrote this, but it does have the feeling of a older person trying to write teenage dialogue and just wildly missing the mark, but doubling down on it. Mm-hmm. That's what the kids say all the time. Oh, yeah, they're always calling things nutty in that dungarees. <laughs> Eating their hamburger sandwiches. <laughs> yep. Man, speaking of Cyborg, I got a real kick out of the way that he likes to make a path through the forest. Yeah, man. He just barrels through those trees and shoves them down like they were so many Dick Graysons. Mm -hmm. It was kind of fun to watch, but also just like, you know, that's probably not any quicker than going around them. Mm-hmm. Quite the opposite, almost certainly. Plus, you're just cutting a swath of destruction through... Did you get a sense of where they were? It probably told us, didn't it? I thought, like, upstate New York somewhere. I definitely got that impression. I don't think it actually says, but yeah, I got upstate New York or possibly the Poconos, but something like that. Mm-hmm. And in that panel, too, that we were just talking about, Donna is right behind him. And she's like, dude, there was an obvious path to this clearing. Like, you did not need to smash your way through all those trees. <laughs> I think he's just enjoying his power, you know? Yeah. Which I get. Yeah. There was kind of a funny panel, which was funny because I misread it. But when I guess Dick sent Starfire to Max's medical school to retrieve the records and find out if any corpses had been stolen. Was that what you think was going on with the mission he sends her off on? Yeah, that was the only thing I could imagine. And then she calls him the next morning. You see, it's 6.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And there's a little caption that says, Dawn, but I misread it at first as just saying, Damn. <laughs> like, damn, it's early? Yeah, it's like 6.30, the phone's ringing. Damn. But it's done in the caption instead of somebody saying it, so I, I read it as, like, the comic book is like, damn, check this shit out. Somebody's <laughs> calling at 6.30. I just thought that was kind of fun. Well, we got a lot more to get to, but I think it's all going to come up in the minutiae. You ready if we uh, cut over to the minutiae? Sure, let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like starting off with? Hmm. Why don't we talk about fashion? All right. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are most worthy of highlighting? Well... We already talked about Terry Long as a sexy ninja man. His General Zod vacation jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. Very low-cut uh, V-neck. Not bad. Good look. Mm-hmm. But, man, Starfire really steals the show in, in her getup, which is like a muscle shirt and short shorts that are magenta or maybe, like, bright pink. Mm-hmm. And some Velcro shoes and kind of, like, fuzzy, like, not quite leg warmers, but like really thick socks. 
Yeah, like ankle warmers, maybe. Ankle warmers, yeah. And then to that, she adds a, a blue super turtleneck sweater that matches her like Ray-Ban style sunglasses. And that is a good look. Yeah, she looks like she is 100% ready to jazzercise. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I also noticed her jazzercising outfit. Do you remember a thing called mouser-sizing? Is that something that we've talked about on this show? God, I feel like it rings a bell, but I, I have no memory of it. I vaguely recall it being a thing. It was the Mickey Mouse-branded jazzercising that was uh, done... I think it was on the Disney Channel, maybe, but it was to, like, get children to jazzercise. <laughs> One of my friends in college told me the story about when he was a little kid, his nursery school was doing mouser-sizing, and when they were doing that, he ran into the other room and started crying. <laughs> and his teacher asked him why, and his response is something that will stick with me forever, which is, I don't want to shake my little tushy. It's demeaning. Oh, wow. That's how does it how do you deal with that as a teacher? It's like, good God, what no. have I done? <laughs> I don't know. Just hearing that, I can I can picture my friend saying that at any point in his life. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, that I mean, it seems kind of precocious for a kid to be using that language, but if anybody would, it would be him. And I, I think of that story whenever the the concept of aerobicizing comes up. I can't see how it wouldn't. Yeah. For other fashion, I really liked Cyborg's casual outfit. We've seen variations on it before, but he's uh, wearing a nice red hooded sweatshirt and some jeans, and uh, it goes well with his cybernetic parts, and it's just a cool look. Mm -hmm. Dick's looking real 80s, too. He's got, it's maybe a jean jacket with a popped collar and the sleeves pushed up to his elbows. Pretty good. Well, speaking of... 80s trends. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, two of them. One is, in addition to Starfire's jazzercise outfit, when she's frolicking in her new loft, she's got a record album, an LP on the floor, which is titled simply New Wave. Uh-huh. And, I mean, granted, that's probably like late 70s to mid 80s rather than late 80s i don't know what the timing is on it but i was trying to think like oh what is she listening to like i bet it's got tainted love on it and probably <laughs> heart of glass i don't know maybe watching the detectives by elvis costello some talking heads but that seemed pretty firmly in the 80s yeah i agree and the fact that it was a record album and it's not like starfire is generally coded as a hipster or somebody this was just the way that she listened to music then I think puts that pretty firmly in the, the late 80s at the latest, you know? And I also think it's like one of those compilation records. So like, not like, like the cool kids would like go get the actual <laughs> records. It'd be like punk, punk rock, greatest hits or something. It's like freedom rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for new wave. Yeah. It's a K-Tel or a Rhino compilation that she's listening to. Mm -hmm. Although... That's not the only record that we see her have, because she has another one that I'm trying to figure out what it's called. Looks like she has a record album on her floor called Deep Plube. Where do you see that? Page two, bottom left-hand panel. I bet that's supposed to be Deep Purple. Maybe, but it really looks like it just says Deep Plube. <laughs> They're like a, a Deep Purple knockoff. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, I had that as one of my timestamps. I also think the title of the issue, Trivial Pursuits, uh, Trivial Pursuit was wildly popular in the 80s. And so I think that is in itself a bit of a timestamp. Also, interesting to note that it's at odds with the cover, which has the much more dire-sounding Deadly Pursuit. And then you open it up and it is immediately like, nah, just kidding. It's a trivial pursuit. I know. I, I had that too. And so in my notes, I always write down what the title is. And it's always interesting the, the difference between the title page title and the like splash opening page title. But yeah, I'm so happy for Starfire in this. Like she's got a dope apartment. She's flying around. She's super into it. She's got her records. Like she's so happy. It's nice to see that. It is. And you know what? That actually segues into our next and new category. Battle of the Band Names. So, in our last contest, we had the Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent, which was a name that we got from New Teen Titans number 31, going up against a name that we got from the Defenders number 87, the Million Dollar Cowboys. So I posted a Twitter poll, and it was actually pretty close, but Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent is the winner. Nice. So, who do we have going up against Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent this week? Will they be able to unseat them? What band name were you able to find in this issue? Well, it was tough to find one that had more than five words in it, like Polychromatic Rainbow of Descent, but I, I think I pulled it off. Okay. And uh, this is a band that I, I guess it hadn't really quite been invented yet, but I'm thinking they're like uh, post-rock, like Mogwai or Godspeed You Black Emperor, or This Will Destroy You, stuff like that. And they are called After the Dawn, comma, Comes the Day. Ooh. From a bit of exposition on page 24. That's pretty good. I had a couple that I was choosing from. None of them were as long as yours, though. The first one that I found was the Nutty Hybrid Gang. And I don't (laughs) think that's quite got it. Like, I can see that being like a swing revival band. Like, Uh, Oh, no. Like the Squirrel Nut Zippers. But that might just be because of the Nutty Squirrel Uh Association. Then I found what I think might be a pretty decent, I don't know, like, metal band like maybe power violence or something called power from blood oh which i think sounds pretty heavy but i think the best band name and i would like to be clear this is a band whose music i do not think i would like but it's from some captions that appear by the scene where raven's chilling with a bunny rabbit and a snake the captions for that scene start off with the words Below, the stillness of the forest is barely broken. And I think the name Barely Broken is pretty good. Hmm. So I think Barely Broken is the one that is my favorite one, and I can see them absolutely being like a system of a down type I was just going to be like, yeah, like Avenged Sevenfold. Or... Yeah, totally. Like, Barely Broken. Like, I don't like them, but I think they're actually probably pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they open for Five Finger Death Punch. <laughs> <laughs> I can also just see them being like an Incubus-style band, although I don't really know who Incubus was. Uh, slash is? Are they still around? I don't really know. I, I feel like if 
you played me their music, I would be like, oh yeah, that's them, but I can't name of their, any of their songs. I couldn't either, but I don't know. What What do you think? After the dawn comes the day, or barely broken? Hmm. There is one more wild card, which is kind of like uh, paraphrased from some of the dialogue, which is Game of Murder. Yeah, I... <laughs> it sounded a little dark, so I didn't want to necessarily throw it out there but you could see that being like a you know i think that's good too but it's never actually said that way is it you you said that was a paraphrasing yeah so we have to use a direct uh i think it has to be a direct quote because there were a couple of like paraphrases that i was just like ooh, that's so close to being a good band name but like they said this instead of the in it or something you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. i think it has to be a direct quote I say, let's go with Barely Broken. Okay. If nothing else, that will take less time to type in a Twitter poll. <laughs> I, I don't see that unseating the polychromatic business. but I don't think it necessarily will, but uh, I think it'll, it'll maybe give it the best run for its money. Let's do it. Okay. So I will post that Twitter poll and make sure to vote. And let's just hope that the uh, Million Dollar Cowboys lawsuit doesn't overturn the results of last week's election oh man i don't know that could financially break this podcast (laughs) if it does it would be barely broken oh who did you have as this issue's president of the drama club which character acted or rather overacted in the most dramatic fashion in this issue yeah it's funny how sometimes subtlety can be going over the top, but for sitting in the dappled sunlight trying to get a snake and a bunny rabbit to get along whilst weeping, I had Raven. (laughs) I like that that's subtle. (laughs) Like, usually I go for, like, the big, like, gesticulations, grabbing of the heart, shaking of the fist type stuff. This, she's really just sitting on a rock being, being weepy with some animals, but I don't know. The setting really sealed the deal for me. Yeah, I think that's a solid choice. I did consider Raven, and I had her as my backup, if for no other reason than the sheer amount of times in this issue that it is a close-up on her face with her eyes welling with tears. I think there's like four or five panels of that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I ended up going with Dick Grayson for pulling the old, I'm not gonna go. Wait, you're gonna go without me? Okay, fine, I'll go. But... I'll complain the whole time and make it all about me. Mm. I feel like that is a very high drama move. And I felt like that was what Dick was up to in this. Yeah. In particular, the way that his expressions are drawn on a couple of the panels on page 23, when he and Starfire are on the balcony having a, having a big talk, there's a scene in which she touches his shoulder and he looks at it like her hand is like a leech or something like really <laughs> gross. It made me think that she was hitting him. (laughs) Like, just with the amount of abuse that he does take in this issue, I was like, well, there she goes again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was so well drawn, though. Like, and and also the panel, like, right before that, she's like, admit it, you're afraid to be with me. And he's just, like, sulky and sullenly staring off into space. No, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. You're afraid to be with you. Yeah, that's really captures the dickishness of his behavior. Agreed. And I don't know, that seems like it might be a preview of... 
Who did you have as your Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans? And who did you have as your Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans? Mm. Let's start with the worst. So as runner-up, I had Donna, because I don't like a thread of dance. Like, <laughs> that's not nice. Like, Raven's just getting back on her feet. You don't, you'd leave her alone. I'm like, oh, you'd be prettier if you smile. Oh, yeah, we're going to go salsa. I was like, dude, I don't want to do that. Oh, you'll love it. That's bullshit. Yeah. So you would unironically make the statement, don't threaten me with a good time. Yes. All right. But I do feel like uh, Dick's behavior, especially in regards to how he treated and continues to treat Starfire, edged Donna out in the role of this issue's Beast Boy. I had Dick as my backup for the reasons that we mentioned. To his credit, he did correct himself that he does now know that Starfire's husband is not her brother. He makes a point of saying, since you married Captain Papadopoulos or Karis or whatever, and not repeating his mistake that it was Reander. So that's nice. But then he, he undoes any goodwill that that would have earned him by suggesting that they all bring a board game out into a clearing in the middle of the woods to play Clue, which is just a dumb plan. You're going to lose some pieces, and then you're not going to be able to play it next time. Yeah. Don't bring a board game into the woods. So that is why I was tempted to go with Dick. But ultimately, I had to go with Cyborg. You get unnecessary deforestation. (laughs) You get him being the one who tells Raven... You know, you'd be prettier if you smiled, which automatically any dude saying that to any lady earns him the worst. And him nearly breaking Dick's coccyx by just pulling him roughly to the floor like that when Dick first shows up. I had to go with Cyborg. Mm. I, I like Cyborg. I think he was in some ways pretty fun in this issue, but uh, he was the worst. Mm. I actually had him in my running for an Aqualad, but due to those issues and also possibly that he just fell out of that tree rather than Dick pushing him out. I think it's pretty clear that Dick kicked him out of that tree, but I guess it could go either way. Well, in that case, it reinforces my choice for for Dick being the Beast Boy in this issue, because that's not Mm. cool. So then for me, it came down to Starfire and Raven, who I feel both performed admirably. And since it's been so long and she's been on the bad guy side of things for a while, uh, I wanted to give the nod to Raven. She scared those eagle hunters real good and uh, rescued that kid and tried to assuage the fears of that bunny rabbit next to that snake, (laughs) which I guess that could go either way. But anyway, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. Raven, good job. Okay, it was a toss-up for me as well between those two, and I went with Starfire, but I think they're both really solid choices. Starfire had a hand in most of the things that you had Raven on the board for doing. Like, she also helped rescue that kid, she also helped scare the hunter, and she just maintained a really good attitude throughout and was just, you know, fun-loving. I like her non-pretentious record collection. Sometimes you just want to get a collection of the new wave hits, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm fine with a best of album. Oh yeah, I didn't mean to uh, disparage that earlier. I I've been known to uh, be very fond of those, especially the Ohio Players' greatest hits. Mm. But yeah, I decided to go with Starfire. I thought she was a lot of fun. Likewise, and I liked that she shoved Dick into a corpse at one point. 
just by smacking him on the back of the head. That's a heck of a smack. Yup. What was your favorite panel? Gosh, I guess I had three to choose from. On page five, Raven sitting in the, the dappled sunlight, commuting with the forest critters, I mm-hmm. thought was really nicely rendered, especially like the detail put into the foliage and whatnot. I really liked all of the silhouette work when Dick and Cyborg are climbing the tree, but in particular that first one that's got like a purple background that really captures that setting sunlight just mm-hmm. after dusk kind of feel on page 21. But I think my favorite I call Dick Attack, and that's on page 26, and it's when <laughs> everybody's throwing pillows, tackling, and board game, hitting him in the back of the head. It's just so comical, because everybody's just having a hoot, except Dick, who's <laughs> just like, ow! That was my favorite, too. I love that. I liked the picture of him puckishly holding up the clue board right before that. But uh, yeah, my favorite is just everybody having a great time beating the shit out of Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. There were others I had as the backup. I liked Raven chasing away the eagle poachers. I liked Starfire showing up with the eagle on her wrist, like some kind of a book cover for Starfire's side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, yeah, everybody having a great time and bonding over beating the shit out of Dick was my favorite panel. It was a good one. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you want to talk about? Oof. This one was a little tricky for me. So I went with one that is, I guess, more of like an interpretation of tone. (laughs) And it's on page 14, and it's when Donna says to Terry, Oh, that's sweet of you to worry, dear. And (laughs) I think she's saying that in kind of like a... Like in the South, somebody would say, like, bless your heart, to mean, like, you're a total fucking idiot. (laughs) Yep. I think that is an accurate read of the tone behind that statement. I think that's a really good choice. Thank you. Yeah, I had a little bit of difficulty finding one. I think one of my favorites is Donna teasing Terry and saying, so you admit that you're an old man. I Mm. thought that was pretty good. I think my favorite, though, is... I believe it's Donna describing the Eagle Hunters as minor league gangsters, which I did briefly consider as a band name, oh, but uh, yeah. but I think is also a pretty good insult. Yeah, not bad. I also liked when Raven and Donna referred to Beast Boy as a pest, which doesn't seem that harsh unless you take into account the fact that he's not there. And it's the kind of insult that like you say it to somebody's face and it's like ah that's just their pals that's how they joke around but when they're talking about a dude who's not there and they're like yeah beast boy's a real pest but he probably would be useful finding a trail here or something Mm. it's like oh they really don't like him Mm. yeah good observation well Corey, i have but one final question i must put to you Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1988, and the month of our Lord, August, as we do go by the date of the reprints, although I think, honestly, this might be the first month that they stopped doing the reprints, so 
it kind of at this point it seems like we're just picking an arbitrary date that's a month after the last of the reprints so i don't know if we're gonna keep doing that or not but anyway for whatever reason possibly no good reason in the year of our lord 1988 and the month of our lord august what was aqualad probably up to Mm. well little background before we get into august of of 88 so I, I can't remember if you knew this or not, but Aqualad actually had a little bit of a lecture circuit in universities going on, talking about marine biology and fish communication, et cetera, you know, things well oh. in his wheelhouse. So he really fascinated a young Matt Biondi in a lecture that he was giving at UC Berkeley previous, and uh, Matt came up to him after and was like, oh, that's really interesting. And essentially, they, they struck up a friendship, especially when Aqualad realized that, that Matt was an avid competitive swimmer. And so they started hanging out, you know, going for swims together and whatnot. And um, Alkalad was amazed. Like, this kid had some real athletic potential. And so he decided to share with him a little secret that he called the Atlantean flip, which is just a, a special kicking technique to give you a little bit of an edge, mm. which uh, Biondi pulled out in one of his uh, competitive events in the 1988 Olympics, and he was able to basically set the record in the 100-meter freestyle the first time that anybody had done it under 49 seconds and um, just really kicked butt, and that's all thanks to Aqualad. And afterwards, they didn't catch it, but he did thank that uh, things worked out such that he attended that lecture on fish communication back at UC <laughs> Berkeley, you know, crediting his, his win at the Olympics that year. Wow. Good to know. Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to in the apparently arbitrary date of August of 1988. But it wasn't the only thing he was up to that month. One of the things he was up to was watching the U.S. presidential election that year. And he tried to tune in to both of the major parties' national conventions. And so he watched because he felt like he should keep apprised of what was going on the Republican National Convention, and saw George H.W. Bush give his acceptance speech. That's the speech where Bush made the famous statement, read my lips, no new taxes. As we know, Aqualad is a bit of a literalist, and so, trying to give the candidate a fair shake, when George Bush said, read my lips, Aqualad plugged his ears up and tried to read his lips. Unfortunately, Aqualad's not great at lip reading, so he thought he heard this presidential candidate, who was in the lead in the polls, announce, no new taffies. (laughs) And he said, oh no, I've been trying to develop my new freshwater taffy for years now. We all know how wildly popular saltwater taffy is. I've been trying to work out a freshwater taffy, also a brackish water taffy, but I don't see that one selling too well. So I better get cracking on this if I want it out before the election. So he sequestered himself deep in Crater Lake in Oregon and started just getting to work trying to crack the code on this freshwater taffy. And he, he left some notes letting his friends know what was going on with that. And they're like, oh, that's that's not what he said. He he can take his time with his taffy deal. The, the, there's no pressure. But they had trouble getting down there to talk to him. Fortunately, earlier in that month, on August 1st, in fact, 
The Deep Rover, a one-man research sub, made its debut and was unveiled at Crater Lake in Oregon. So Dick Grayson was able to hop into that machine and zoom down to the bottom or near the bottom of Crater Lake. I don't know that they've ever actually found the bottom of Crater Lake, but uh, he, he was able to go up to Aqualad and held up a sign that said, it's okay, he said taxes. And Aqualad <laughs> breathed a deep sigh of relief and headed up to the surface. Nice. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to in August of 1988. Oof, what a month. He never did crack the code on that freshwater taffy. But to be fair, I don't think anybody has ever actually wanted saltwater taffy to begin with. Wow. You know, it's one of those things, like, you're on vacation, you're like, oh, that's good. It tastes fine, because it's sugar. I like the buttered popcorn flavor of it okay, actually. But for the most part, it's just a waste. I fear for my teeth. Yeah. Well, Corey, thanks for joining us. (laughs) You are welcome. I had a good time talking with you about this comic book that was, well, a little light on the details, but... Okay. We'll be back next week to talk some Defenders with you. We are closing in on one of my favorite issues of the Defenders. I don't think it's next week's, but it's coming up pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to that. And then we'll be back in a couple weeks to talk some more New Teen Titans. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in a whole bunch of other internet places. You can look for us there. Just type into Ask Jeeves. Hey, Jeeves! Do you need to address Jeeves when you type things into Ask Jeeves? I didn't know that was still a thing, and I can't remember using it. Okay. It seems rude not to. So just type in Jeeves question mark. Mm-hmm. Where can I find Tighten Up the Defense? And uh I don't know. Maybe it'll tell you. Or maybe you'll just get a listing of PG Wodehouse books. Those are a lot of fun. Maybe just read one of those instead of spending too much time on the internet. Mm. Or you can, you know, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the all them places, uh seacaptainsonly.com, of course, Grinder, uh, you know, internet words. Mm-hmm. But hey, if you can't find us any of those places, there's another place you can look. Deep inside your heart. We'll be in there, trying to find all the pieces to that board game that Dick Grayson took out into the woods with him. I don't know why we're even bothering. Clue's a terrible two-person game. Mm-hmm. Like, you can play it with two people, but it's not very fun. That's not even worth it. No. Especially with all these pieces missing. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, your heart's gonna be fine. Yeah. It's a nice, quiet activity. That's why we're doing it in your heart. Mm-hmm. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you make a donation, you get access to all kinds of extra bonus material. 
There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show, which is a podcast I co-host with my wife, Lisa, where we talk about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. There's also a bunch of extra bonus video reviews of classic comics that I make up there. I'm about to start in on my uh, giant Marvel Treasury Edition holiday grab bag issues. So those will be fun to talk about. Did one on uh, Cave Carson the other day. He, he's a good guy. It's a Bob Haney written comic book about spelunking. So, you know, you can check out my thoughts on those and poke around and find some of the other bonus things we did. I've recorded some bonus episodes with Corey on there, too. If you make a donation, you get access to all that stuff. But from my perspective, at least, more importantly, it... uh Let's us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing on the show and want us to be able to continue it. So thanks for doing that. If you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, you can do so by uh, leaving us a review in a place that a review can be left. I think Corey came up with the idea that you could just leave us a review that says, pretty good. Mm -hmm. And we'll know deep in our hearts, that means you guys are the bestest most handsomest podcast in the whole wide universe. So I really appreciate you guys writing that. Thank you. That's very sweet. I don't even think I'm pretty. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, remember, a corpse isn't necessarily the best way to improve a family game night. And that's want to grow up. Bye. Bye, guys. And they knew it. Bio, I haven't Beyondi? tried to say this guy's name out loud. Biondi. I think it's Beyondi. Beyondi.